All right. Thank you for being here. Um, today we're going to continue Sutta Napata. We're still in Chapter 1. We're at Sutta 11, Vijaya Sutta. Vijaya means victory, um, which is very interesting because <laughs> the topic is the... Uh, the topic of Vijaya Sutta, where Vijaya means victory, the topic is actually a nitty-gritty rundown of the repulsiveness of the human body, which um, whose discussion is clearly a subset, I think, uh, of Buddhist asceticism, which is related to religious or spiritual practice or path asceticism uh, or relation to the body, uh, relation to desires and um, physicality. Uh, I can't get into all of that, and that's a huge study, meaning you could do a whole course on religious asceticism, and then Buddhist asceticism, and then Buddhist relationship to the body. Uh, I want to first present Vijaya Sutta, and then swing over to uh, a short discussion of Buddhist Dutanga practices, which are 13 ascetic practices that Gautama didn't um, require and um, were well developed at the time of Gautama, 2,500 years ago, not followed by all the monks. Certainly, in general, nearly only a few of them were ever followed even by non-monks because many of them have to do with robes and taking food from lay people in the, you know, the going round taking alms alms food in the morning and so lay people don't do that and lay people don't wear robes and most of the 13 are about robes and uh begging or food some then are also about where one lives and so i will look into a page from a site called damadana.org which is a pretty good rundown of not only the practices, but the whole Buddhist culture mindset uh, of the time of Gautama and in the Theravada, the, the Theravada Buddhist approach to asceticism and these practices overall. That's, it's a very deep presentation, actually. And then I want to draw a bit from the last link, which is a, a, a long essay written by, um, I think, I, I believe he was Australian. He's still alive. He's very old now. Um, uh, Bhikkhu Kantipalo, um, who, um, for one reason or another, I mean, he wrote this in 1994. It's called With Robes and Bowl, Glimpses of the Tudong Bhikkhu Life. Tudong is the Thai uh, formulation of the original Pali word Dutanga. And so Pali... Dutanga becomes Tudong in Thai, Thai Buddhist language. Uh, an essay on uh, the monks in Thailand who practice these ascetic practices. And I'm not going to use all of it, but just a certain portion uh, of his write-up. Um, interestingly, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to get into it, but interestingly, uh, a sutta that's a, a what's called what he wrote as verses for two dong fairing from Sutta Nepata, meaning uh, some encouragement for those who are doing ascetic practices, 
drawn mainly from Kagavisana Sutta, <laughs> wander wander alone like a rhinoceros, drawn mainly from that sutta are <laughs> many of these verses for Tudong Fairing in that page. And so there is some linkage between the mindset of wandering alone or um, the way of seclusion, solitude, and that sutta, and asceticism. So asceticism is a physical, psychological, or mind-body. <laughs> and so some portion of asceticism is really how one um, approaches body or sensual desire, normal physical desires, and relationship and even mind. And there's healthy and unhealthy asceticism for sure. And these practices were not recommended for people with strong anger bias, but more so people with strong greed or desire basis. So there's the three poisons, you know, grasping aversion, ignorance, grasping desire, greed, so-called, or hunger, and aversion, anger, aggression, <laughs> mindedness, and activity, and then ignorance, which is sort of fuzzy, foggy mind, and uh, overthinking, and um, just a, a mental tangle, which is not necessarily aggressive and not necessarily clear enough to be desirous of uh, hungry, salivating, ever salivating as the greed or desire of grasping mind is. So those three are, you know, pull it in, push it out, and I don't know, <laughs> the three poisons. And these practices were not for somebody whose basic tendency is I hate you, I hate it, push it away, kill it, get rid of it. Uh, that <laughs> These practices would make more anger, or were known to make more anger. And so one needs to be more balanced or they're not recommended for everybody. <clears throat> and I'm certainly not recommending them, but I, I really want to show uh, the Buddhist, the, the uh, core Buddhist uh, spirit of asceticism. And the spirit of asceticism, which is really renunciation or... Um, Vairagya, or turning away from grasping, aversion, and ignorance, particularly turning away from grasping, uh, turning away from desire, or realizing I don't need it, or it's not that great anyway. And it's very disappointing <laughs> for us when we're in the flush of pleasure and desire, the, the pleasure from fulfilling desire. The pleasures and satisfactions that come from fulfilling desire. Um, it throws a, a wet towel upon it or throws water on the, the happy flame uh, to reflect on, it's not that great anyway, you know. <laughs> or, it just came and went, and uh, what am I left with now? Meanwhile, uh, like we were talking in class, some very uh, subtle, careful, personal, slowly, clearly developed and evolving over time balance between restraint and license is critical. Uh, a personally fashioned and, and ever sensitive to the time and the circumstance and situation around us and the people and ourselves and uh, what's harmful, what's not harmful, 
what's valuable and how valuable and what's not valuable, what's harmful, all of that needs to go into a, a continuing, continually evolving perspective on the balance between license and restraint, expression, doing, non-restraint in speech and action particularly, versus restraint of speech and action. And these, the Buddhist asceticism is clearly um, uh, coming from um, a high valuation of restraint, restraint of speech and action, and, uh, and a deliberate desire to cut desire, desire to cut desire, <laughs> the desire to cut attachment or, or hunger and craving by way of these practices, but the whole Buddhist presentation, the whole Buddhist philosophy, certainly Theravada more than anyone, any other yana, <clears throat> is is very um, worldly rejecting. It's very renunciant, renunciate, and renunciate, renouncing. And um, that was very appropriate <laughs> to the those that were incarnated at the time of Gautama, who probably were uh, late sixth density wanderers ready to jump from six to eight, it seems to me. And so the Buddhist asceticism is um, in a personalized um, way useful for everyone, meaning it needs to be personalized for each person, uh, subjectively understood, yet preserving the essential spirit it, it, you know, the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law, as they say. Uh, sometimes uh, following the letter of the law without knowing the spirit of the law, one gets into trouble. And sometimes, or generally, knowing the spirit of the law and applying it even outside the letter of the law. <laughs> when I'm just talking about practices, Tutanga, I'm not talking about breaking the human laws, I'm talking about these practices and the particular forms of restraint of speech and action, um, sometimes, or I would say maybe not sometimes, but essentially knowing the spirit um, is critical. And then one can choose how, how to apply that spirit to speech and action, whether it's to degree, the deg particularly the degree to which we restrain versus give ourselves free license to do or say what we want. And these, this, uh, presentation today will give you a sense of where early Buddhism stood um, or the heart of Buddhism, the spirit uh, one of the essential qualities of spirit or um, mindset <clears throat> of Buddhism and why it's very difficult to follow and not applicable to a lot of people and why um, lots of people won't, won't want to look into this and, you know, I, I myself, even though I was deep in Theravada Buddhism meditation in my 20s, had uh, 10, 15, 20 years, somewhere, maybe 15, 20 years, where I was pulling away. And then now I'm coming back. But um, one must be careful <laughs> not to either uh, hurt oneself by non-restraint and hurt oneself, nor hurt oneself by over-restraint. Uh, but the spirit is, uh, th all these pleasures, I mean, there's a difference between pleasure and heart satisfaction. And that's not really addressed here. It's really s a more subtle perspective. 
that is associated with the the development of collective consciousness at this time, uh, the, the end of third density, uh, the conditions of mind of humanity, quite different, yes, than 2,500 years ago in India, um, needing a somewhat different teaching, anent, as Bailey would say, anent, A-N-E-N-T, meaning regarding the balance of restraint versus license, or restraint, non-restraint, or um, the attitude towards satisfaction of desire in general, the spirit uh, keeping uh, not to necessarily the letter of the Buddhist law in terms of these practices, because I mean, these are not, this is way beyond Panchashila, okay, what you're going to see when we get into 13 Dutanga practices, it's way beyond Panchashila. Panchashila <laughs> there's no there's no progression without it, meaning non-harming, non-killing, uh, non-harming by speech, meaning no lying and harsh speech and malicious speech and trivial speech and divisive speech and um, spoken kindly or truly appropriately timely. That's critical, right speech. And then, of course, non-stealing or non-harming by sex or intoxicants of self or other, those are critical. This Dutanga is a whole lot gone beyond that and much tighter um, self-restriction and practice, practice of self-restriction. Uh, but it's totally in line with, with Vijaya Sutta and while the letter may be inappropriate, meaning the specific practices for most everyone, the spirit is very important to determine. <clears throat> the spirit being uh, a big view of um, pleasure and bodily and how we see body and even how we see the whole incarnation. It's, it's a, uh, an overview, um, spiritual, the view from a high spiritual altitude, the view from no solar <laughs> and up, the view from no solar and up from astral city, the mid and upper astral planes and up higher dimensions upon the pleasures and satisfactions of incarnation associated with body and associated with relationship. Meanwhile, um, not falling into uh, hatred and not falling into self-punishment and uh, knowing the limits of restraint and also the limits of non-restraint. Anyway, that's a prologue, <laughs> a very philosophical, meandering prologue uh, to today's presentation. Back to the first link, uh, Sutta Nipata, the collection, Tanasaro's overview, Vijaya Sutta SN 1.11111, Victory, which, you know, it's interesting that it's all related to uh, seeing the body as repulsive. His writer, his summary, reflecting on the unattractiveness of the body as a way to gain insight. And so, yes, insight can come by this. And um, let's jump in. The second link, uh, Vijaya Sutta, Victory, translated from Pali by Tanisaro Bhikkhu, 1997. And uh, here we go. Whether walking, standing, sitting or lying down, it, meaning the body, it flexes and stretches, 
this is the body's movement, joined together with tendons and bones, plastered over with muscle and skin, hidden by complexion. The body isn't seen for what it is. Filled with intestines, filled with stomach, with the lump of the liver, bladder, lungs, heart, kidneys, spleen, mucus, sweat, saliva, fat, blood, synovial fluid, bile, and oil. On top of that, in nine streams, filth is always flowing from it. From the eyes, eye secretions. From the ears, ear secretions. From the nose, mucus. From the mouth, now vomit, now phlegm, now bile. From the body, beads of sweat. And on top of that, its hollow head is filled with brains. The fool, beset by ignorance, thinks it beautiful. But when it lies dead, swollen, livid, cast away in a charnel ground, even relatives don't care for it. Dogs feed on it, jackals were wolves and worms. Crows and vultures feed on it, along with any other animals there. Having heard the awakened one's words, the discerning monk comprehends, for he sees it for what it is. Quote, As this is, so is that. As that, so this. End quote. Within and without, he should let desire for the body fade away. With desire and passion faded away, the discerning monk arrives here, at the deathless, the calm, the undying state of unbinding, nirvana. This two-footed, filthy, evil-smelling, filled with various carcasses, oozing out here and there body, whoever would think, on the basis of a body like this, to exalt himself or disparage another? What is that, if not blindness? So this is not a politically correct, or maybe politically correct for some uh, self-mortifiers, but it's not a very um, <laughs> kind of uh, happy uh, new world culture, brave new world perspective. Um, the revulsion, the, the disgustingness of a rotting dead body, seeing the present body <laughs> as a decomposing flesh bag filled with stuff that's all kind of nasty, it's basically superimposing a vision of um, a dead body decomposing, breaking up, bur bursting and oozing and becoming all nasty. Superimposing that kind of vision on seeing one's own body or the bodies of others. Now, <laughs> this is not uh, a recommended uh, way of seeing human body. It's recommended only for those with extreme greed attachment to physicality. Uh, and so, like the letter of the law, uh, doing this practice, and this are, there are practices in Buddhism. I don't think Gautama, I'm not sure if Gautama taught directly um, the practices of uh, contemplating the revulsiveness of the body. Uh, but the charnel ground practice or meditating in a place where bodies are decomposing was surely done at the earliest time. And again, it's not recommended for anybody with some significant de degree of anger. And 
Uh, it's considered an advanced practice, and some people will definitely go insane if they did it. <clears throat> I am not, not, not recommending Dutanga practices, or certainly that, not that practice. But uh, going from the practice specifics uh, to the spirit behind it, the perspectives on body, but perspectives particularly on craving and physicality and incarnation overall and desires overall or non-restraint desire to satisfy desire, the, the non-restraint of desire, the act of, of seeking to satisfy desire. <clears throat> it seems to me the basic spirit behind these recommendations or practices, what I would call the spirit of the law, is useful to comprehend and apply which is really, in many ways, um, the heart of it is simply anicca, anicca anatta. Uh, that the basis of dukkha, as I see it, is anicca anatta. And so the three characteristics, the three marks, anicca anatta dukkha, impermanence, insati uh, <clears throat> impermanence or changeableness, all is ever-changing, shifting flux and flow, and then anatta, no self, or insubstantiality, or emptiness, sunyata, basic that, that there isn't anything substantial um, phenomenological emptiness <clears throat> the the essential insubstantiality of mind body and thought and then that's all the basis of dukkha that's ultimately the spirit here i'd say is, is a deep understanding of anicanata that uh what we when there is particularly uh, high, very <clears throat> tightly, tightly wound desire, very strong super attachment, various super attachments associated with desire grasping. Um, surely can benefit from understand uh, a deeper look at anicca not necessarily the repulsiveness, because that's there's something artificial about this. Obviously, the, the, you can also say that body is. God's temple, you can say it's basically light. <laughs> you can say it's a perfection of divine design. Of course, all, all that. It, it's a symbolic map of creation. Uh, the five middle chakras uh, as uh, human or the essential mind of self-conscious mind of being at this dimensional level being a representation of, of God in the form of a, a five-fold self-conscious being, uh, and the five and the seven as um, manifestation of light and love, and vibrating light, sentient light, and um, complete and whole and perfect. Also, that can be seen, or said and known. So that's another side. <clears throat> uh, and again, so this is basically very bitter medicine for those super attached to desire those with multiple super attachments associated particularly with body lust 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 and you know it's very hard not to have lust for a male with high testosterone it's very hard to have to not have some kind of strong desire to physical beauty or physical form for a woman that is a head turner hey she's a babe and she's a stunner, and you know. So um, construction workers whistling um, may lead some women to feel happy. Hey, they think I'm pretty, and um, 
uh, you know, being in a female body, a soul in a female body that's very attractive or has great beauty, which may be the result of merit and virtue in past lives, um, would have a hard time, or a male attached to their big, strong body or a handsome body, both, obviously, would normally have attachment to body as um, a source of pride and self-esteem. Meanwhile, then the body ages and uh, it's gone. And it's gone. And there's therefore no more basis for th th that input to self-esteem is gone. What's gone is uh, the beauty and youthfulness of a body that uh, head turned or turned heads and they could feel proud of, boy or girl, male or female. Uh, and there could be often is a great despair, not despair, but a dismay and sorrow at that loss, and it's a real loss, so people would have to grieve the loss of youthful beauty as aging continues. Uh, uh, <clears throat> it's kind of inevitable, and so this is a particular bitter medicine for the particular illness of super-attachment to body and uh, all forms of uh, overvaluing embodiment. It can also be applied to overvaluing pleasure of any sort, uh, as well as overvaluing incarnation as a whole. Um, super attachments of any type, in fact. And it's not necessarily meditating on the uh, kidneys, spleen, mucus, sweat, saliva, fat, blood, and all that, and the nine streams of filth. I mean, you can see that Buddhism can, you know, is rightly called harsh. Theravada Buddhism, and that, but this is just half the story. And there, you can also find in other writings, not particularly Theravadan, but maybe Vajrayana, Tibetan, um, seeing the body as a manifestation of emptiness or a perfect manifestation of uh, clear light, wisdom, compassion, and so there are other ways of looking, and this is a particularly harsh medicine. Let's look at this, the Dutanga a bit. So from the page damadana.org, <clears throat> uh, I'm just going to take a little bit uh, down the first section called The Origin. Um, he writes, whoever writes this, says, The 13 Dutangas mean renunciation, to abandon Dutta, or state of mind, Anga, Dutta Anga. Dutta Anga is, aban is abandoning mind states particularly uh, super-attachment, greed, and uh, glamorizing embodiment, and the body particularly. Thirteen Tutanga's set of practices designed for considerably reducing our attachments in order to reach Nibbana at the soonest like a bird that crosses the cloudless sky on a straight line. Well, birds are always flying in a straight line. Uh, I'm not even sure, frankly, that this will speed up... Uh, achievement of complete and perfect enlightenment surely not for everyone and so again you know <laughs> don't think I'm recommending this <clears throat> meanwhile of the 13 Dutangas a couple of them are really very helpful and so the next section is uh, a rundown uh, he write, he she writes there do exist 13 ascetic practices two for the robes five for the food five for spot of residence and one for posture. 
which is called the Dutanga of Effort. <clears throat> and so this is a the, the synopsis. Uh, these associated the two for robes are the first two. The first is basically only wearing abandoned robes. The second is wearing only three robes and no more, meaning inner, outer, or whatever. There's some I, I never could I, I I was a ordained monk for ten days in uh, two thousand nine at a Thai community temple in San Bruno, California. And um, <clears throat> I even shaved my eyebrows and I looked like, as I say, a saffron fetus. It was very funky and uh, fortunately my eyebrows grew back. Uh, but I just could never put that robe on. It was so clear that <laughs> I could never be a Theravadan monk because I just could never, I, I mean, I just like a dummy, could never fold the robe and put it on properly. Never. And so then I knew it was uh, not a saffron robe incarnational purpose here. So, uh, but there are three robes, something like uh, inner, outer, and extra, something. The three robe, second one here is that you take no more. So, you know, what happens is basically monks get attached to their robes. <laughs> okay, so, you, you know, the mind gets attached to whatever it has, even when it has very little, very common. So the first and second are about uh, not just freely enjoying your robes, but taking either abandoned or rag robes. The second is using three and no more. The other five, the next five for food, uh, collection by means of one's bowl only, food collection without skipping houses, a single meal only, meaning throw it all, uh, taking only one. That's a practice that's very helpful, which is eating once a day. <laughs> I'll talk about all these specifically or some of them later. Six, everything within the bowl, meaning uh, the one bowl wonder. Um, that one is very fun, actually. Uh, no longer accepting any extra food after having started to take the meal. Not not just keep eating and, uh, you know, I take what I... I, I, I get what I'm going to take and I, I take what I'm going to eat and I eat it and that's the end of that and I don't nibble. This is all in terms of one meal a day, you know. The monks only eat one meal a day traditionally in Thailand, so like, or in the Theravadan tradition. In general, nobody's eating afternoon. <clears throat> Unless they're sick, nobody eats after midday. And so they're all doing practice number five, actually. Then <clears throat> we have the five associated with where you live. Uh, living, remaining in the forest, remaining beneath a tree, remaining on the bare earth without shelter, no tree. Remaining among the charnels, that's the practice that drives some insane. I knew a guy who, in college at Naropa, who believed he did this practice in past lives, and he had some real issues with body and sexuality, and um, he was a good guy. And um, uh, <laughs> one can really uh, make trouble in future lives if one does this type, that type of practice, uh, susanika, susanika, remaining among charnel grounds with rotting bodies, doing it when not ready, when not surely prepared, or um, being given the okay by somebody who knows a whole lot better than we do. Uh, Twelve uh, is the final one regarding uh, where you are, sleeping at an allotted spot or something, <clears throat> and then renounce, renounce lying posture. Uh, I want to go deeper into this discussion of um, Tutanga, 
Uh, I like I don't like the Thai word tudong, but um, I prefer this <laughs> Pali to Tanga. Uh, from uh, Kantipalo Biku's page with robes in bold, glimpses of Tudong Biku life in Thailand. Uh, I just want to read some, some basic details and that'll fill out the understanding of the 13 practices <clears throat> and, and particularly help us understand uh, the spirit behind them, what I call the spirit of the law. Uh, the Buddhist view, the early pith core Theravadan Buddhist view that again um, is most appropriate for those who are gunning for um, a leap into eighth density after third, from go to from going from three to eight. Who the hell can go from three to eight? Well, only those who come in from late six, I imagine. Late six and five, fifth density, sixth density wanderers, <clears throat> who um, probably um, came in with the desire with the intention to finish up the octave in three and go from three to eight. They're the only ones that, that really, I think, can benefit from a full application of Buddhist asceticism. And that doesn't necessarily mean doing all 13 practices. So, you know, take it slow. There's a lot that needs to be understood before one should do any practice, actually. And so people say, should I do meditation? And the answer is, yeah, it's always good, or usually good. <laughs> But just you got to prepare to practice by study. So study prepares for practice or meditation. <clears throat> and study and meditation, self-inquiry prepares for service, and can all be done simultaneously. But the more the deeper the study, it doesn't mean the longer. It's just the deeper. A certain length is needed to get deep. That's needed to be grounded in technique to know practice. To then to jump in or deepen and continue practice. And those two support service, obviously. So study, meditation, and service. So, <laughs> given you a lot, uh, let's look down the page um, at Kantipalo's write-up. Uh, he's using very old translations that I think are unhelpful. Uh, some of the earlier stuff you'll see. But... Uh, <clears throat> the paragraph beginning with something should now be said about these austere practices. Lord Buddha, which is the way some people refer to him. Uh, Lord Buddha refused to allow extreme asceticism, so these are not called extreme, with which he had experimented before his enlightenment. However, he did recognize that a certain degree of austerity, meaning more than what's normal, would be useful in the training of bhikkhus, meaning monks, monks and nuns, for instance, we find that in the four nisaya, or supports, recited to a bhikkhu upon the occasion of his ordination, he is to, one, wear rag robes, two, eat alms food, meaning only eat food that's, that's donated freely, generally on the walk, three, dwell at the foot of a tree, four, have fermented cow's urine for medicine. Hey, hey. So the first golden elixir drinkers... Uh, not the first, really, but um, a uh, <laughs> advocates of the the practice of um, uh, Shivambu, Shiva's water, uh, were drinking cow's water or urine as medicine. That was recommended by Gautama. Why cow's urine rather than the monk's own urine? I don't know. 
maybe it was just too kind of close to <clears throat> getting into one's own sexuality. But uh, these were actually the original, I mean, that's, I imagine, still in the original write-up of um, ordination ritual ceremony, that that's how they were recommended to live. Rag robes, eating alms food only, not cooking their own food, dwelling at a foot of a tree, not in a monastery, and taking only cow's urine as medicine. So you can see some of this is very hard to apply today, and lots of people don't want it, because most people are not gunning to go from three to eight, obviously. Going on, further, we see from the lives of many bhikkhus in the time of Lord Buddha that the Dutangas were widely practiced, for the early Sangha was a community in which the wandering meditative life was the normal one. And in fact, that's the way it goes, right? So these are the original wanderers, <laughs> wandering monks, um, wandering and uh, renunciation are closely related, obviously. As examples, we have the greatly venerated Mahakashapa, who was acclaimed by Lord Buddha as the foremost among those who lead austere lives, while the first of his disciples to gain insight into the Dhamma, meaning complete and perfect awakening, or eight, Anya Kondanya, Anya Kondanya, dwelt secluded throughout his life in the depths of the forest, further in than me, for sure. Uh, he was, I believe, one of the four teachers who taught some of the higher formless jhanas to Gautama before he went off on his own and realized what's beyond the formless jhanas. So they all were quite austere ascetics, naturally. And so <laughs> what a different community than uh, those that attend Buddhist uh, seminars today. Then going on with the establishment of permanent viharas, meaning uh, monasteries and uh, sangha communities and structure and residences, which began even in Lord Buddha's days, together with the necessity of preserving Buddha Dhamma, memorizing and learning came to have increased importance. Therefore, not all learned bhikkhus practiced and thus Dutangas were left for those who wished to practice meditation, or of those who were practicing meditation, which has decreased, unfortunately, from the original days till now, as you can see. Uh, not all those who were doing practice were doing Dutanga, but eating once a day is considered one of them, one of the practices, so they're all doing that, uh, presumably, if they're keeping that rule. So these Dutangas obviously range from mild to what we would consider extreme, although at that time they were not considered extreme. Going on, it was also stressed that for a person whose character was strongly rooted in hatred, dosha, these austere practices would not be appropriate, being liable to increase self-hatred uh, or hatred of other. On the other hand, with characters, meaning personality types of monks or people, rooted in greed, loba, faith, shraddha, and mixed-rooted, so-called balanced, distorted <laughs> characters, Dutangas could help greatly in cultivation of renunciation and contentment. So that's an important linkage, renunciation and contentment. And that's part of the purpose, ultimately, of reflection on the three uh, marks, the three characteristics, Anicinata Dukkha, reflecting on the impermanence of all phenomena, uh, the body, whose youthfulness gives way gives gives you know gives way to gives rise to 
aging, sickness, and death, and um, the very changeableness of mind, meaning uh, states of mind come and go, and if they're not amped up by thought, uh, you know, what, what's your state of mind when you're not thinking? <laughs> In the middle of rageful thought, or craving, desirous, salivating thought, if you stop thinking, where did it go? Is it still there? Can you say? <laughs> it can't even be said what it is if one doesn't think and uh, fashion experience by thought. What is, what is experience without thought? Well, <laughs> that's different. And um, that is um, the, the reality of um, the reality of the three marks as uh, basic modes of our experience, experience of the body that's always changing and is essentially uh, composite and um, not solidly eternal or even stable and uh, cut off the fingers, cut off the arms, cut off this, that, the other. Where is the body? What is the body? When do you say uh, the person, there's no more body? There's just a head? Um, meaning um, what we take as solid and substantial is not, actually. And particularly thoughts and emotion, which we take as solid and substantial, are impermanent and empty, or insubstantial. That's the value, that that, that um, application or uh, refer, referring the three marks in Janata particularly uh, to experiences of body and mind and relationship and um, one's own personality tendencies helps with renunciation from attachment. And renunciation from attachment to body-mind helps with contentment. And contentment helps with and feeds back to reducing desire or reducing dissatisfaction. Now, some, as we said before, sometimes the best way to renunciation and contentment is, as Ra said, to experience all things desired. Oh, so we have the raw material, and raw from late sixth density that you know is not ready to go to eight yet, teaching us here in three D, particularly wanderers, that there's great value. Um, you know, original desires that entities seek and become one. Well, that's soul evolution in the cosmic plan. And the proper role or work or function or um, activity, spiritual work in third density is to experience all things desired, of course, desires that are clearly going to lead, which really means speech and action, right? Experience all things desired means um, non-restrained speech and behavior and um, I'll, you know, give license, give self-license to expression of speech, expression in or by speech and behavior, conduct, of activity seeking fulfillment of desire. Sometimes that is the fastest path to renunciation and contentment. And sometimes restraint is. And so there's a balance, we said before, between restraint and license. Uh, desires... And, and there's no final answer here. <laughs> you know, the, the training is really balanced. And it looks different for each person. And what you, what we see in another that looks like license might actually be uh, appropriate for them. 
Meanwhile, what some people think is appropriate and helpful or goodly for themselves may be deeply harmful to themselves. <laughs> right? And so then you have the <clears throat> satanic mix and the New World Order garbage disinformation and Crowley uh, uh, do what thou wilt is the whole of his law, his view, wrong view, <clears throat> imagining that license is the name of the game. Expression of will is the name of the game. Well, expression of will is critical, but there's a bigger game in which it's occurring. <laughs> the game is called Soul Evolution and Cosmic Plan. And there are only two paths. And you got to choose. I mean, everybody listening here has chosen. <clears throat> uh, but we souls need to choose. And there are only two ways to go. <laughs> With love, without love. Um, seeking win-win service to all, benefit to all, or I don't give a fuck about anybody but me. That's it. <laughs> That's a crude phrasing of the two paths. And so the name of the game is soul evolution in the cosmic plan. And yes, um, deployment of will is critical. Meanwhile, the best use of will may be restraint of speech and action sometimes. And the best use of will sometimes may will be non-restraint or allowance of speech and action or conduct in desire to fulfill, in the attempt to fulfill desire, satisfy desire. And that mix, you know, the, the, the decision, <laughs> uh, do, don't do, allow versus restrain, uh, allow versus stop, uh, is very personal, intimately personal <laughs> for each person whenever there's a decision point. Uh, I want it. Should I or shouldn't I go for it? Sometimes uh, it's very harmful to go for it. Sometimes it's very harmful to stop and not go for it. And so, very serious. But the goal is ultimately contentment. The goal is not a stoppage of behavior. The, go the stoppage of behavior is, is a means to an end. <clears throat> Just like license or allowing desire or seeking you know, non-restraining speech and action to fulfill or satisfy desire uh, is also a means to an end. Because that the, the result of the desire, when non-restrained by speech, in speech and action, I say it, I do it, whatever, the goal is more than the securing of the object of desire. Because the experience of satisfaction of object of desire is temporary, is a nichanata, dukkha. It's all sukha is sukha dukkha. <clears throat> right? There is no sukha without dukkha. And so, uh, no failure without success on the way to success someday. No sukha without dukkha because the sukha is impermanent and insubstantial. All the sukha, or pleasure, happiness, joy, love, <laughs> Bliss, ecstasy, they're momentary experiences, anicca, that are essentially insubstantial, anatta, and therefore dissatisfactory because we're not seeking temporary, <laughs> we're seeking permanent. I mean, you don't seek a desire, we don't seek fulfillment of a desire to have a short-term feeling of happiness that goes away, <laughs> but that's what we're getting, a short-term sukha that goes away, that's ultimately insubstantial if you really have quiet mind and look into it. And so nobody's seeking uh, to have and lose. 
nobody's seeking to gain the insubstantial. <laughs> that doesn't sound very cool. <clears throat> that sounds very disappointing. Uh, meanwhile, that's what we're securing. It doesn't mean it's not sukkah. It just means that it's sukkah dukkah. Sukkah dukkah. And so, you know who did that? That was who was that? Uh, that was Dr. Evil. Dr. Evil said, so he was smart. He was uh, giving a signal to the uh, initiated of the dukkha of all conditioned dhammas. So, <clears throat> uh, dutangas could help greatly in cultivation of renunciation and contentment. That's the point. <laughs> Even renunciation is not uh, the goal, as far as little me believes. Um, the goal is a desirelessness, <laughs> which is even beyond contentment. Contentment is some attachment to relative desirelessness. <clears throat> I mean, Ra saying the, 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 the crystallized healer has no will, no personal willing, no personal willfulness to continue securing desires for the personal self, but is in the Tao, follows the Tao. The, is basically... Um, and, and, and a force of the Logos, like Nityananda was a force for the Logos, a force of the Logos, a force of nature. That's what an eighth density being looks like. <clears throat> Gautama, likewise, had no purpose other than uh, sh speaking the Dhamma that leads to the end of all distress and the end of all illusion. Nothing else. That's all he was, uh, is the Tathagata, the one that came and, and spoke and left and dissolved like the fire, you know, um, mind like fire unbound. So that's the point, is <clears throat> not to get attached to practice, but to understand the goals for which practice is performed and not get stuck in restraint and not get stuck in non-restraint and not hurt self and other either by restraint or non-restraint. Uh, <clears throat> let me give, uh, let me, interestingly, there's a <clears throat> write-up in the next paragraph about differences between uh, Thai monks doing Dutanga and then severe asceticism that you may find in Hinduism or Christianity. Uh, this is called uh, self-mortification. And Interestingly, there is a, <clears throat> um, a, a speaking of Gautama in Dhammapada verse 304 uh, that shows the, he wrote, shows the insufficiency of exterior asceticism, right? Meaning uh, mortification of the body without transformation of mind. And that's, I mean, <laughs> I saw that a lot in, in India when we were in Benares. <clears throat> Uh, you got a lot of guys who uh, looked super austere, ascetic on the outside, and that was a no, those were not radiant, loving minds that I could see through those faces, and that was very disappointing. <laughs> uh, why I am not a uh, sad, sad, sadhu, uh, and so this. Uh, there's some question whether this really is verse 304, but uh, in the end, in any case, his translation 
is Gautama saying something like, What is the use of your matted hair, O witless man? What use your garment of antelopes hide? Within you, or mind, is a tangle of passions. Outwardly you clean yourself. And so, uh, that's the point. <clears throat> uh, there's There are some people who do meditation for years, um, not just initially, but it goes on and on, body still, mind running. And so that very much depends on one's technique. If the technique is um, confused, I'd say, or a confused understanding, particularly of mindfulness, or um, uh, the practice that leads to insight, confused understanding may lead to body still, mind running for years on in meditation mind running initially is normal but the technique if one stays with it um, the technique will quiet mind or one's mind will quiet naturally so okay there's outer and inner <clears throat> body mind and the purpose again of these practices uh, is particularly to transform mind um, and not generate more pride in being some kind of um, exemplar body denier uh, <clears throat> the 13 practices uh, that, again, I'm not going to go into full detail on, uh, are listed down the page a bit. And again, the first two are about robes, the next five are about food, the next five about dwelling, and the last one is about uh, sleep. So, <clears throat> just to get a sense of where these guys were coming from, and not to copy them, but to, again, distill, I'd say, the essence of the spirit behind them, the, the spirit uh, of renunciation and detachment and, and right disinterest. It's, it's, you know, it's not one of the Eightfold Path, but what I would say is right vairagya, <laughs> sama vairagya. Vairagya is revulsion, renunciation, dispassion, disinterest in clinging, in craving, in, in grasping an aversion, ultimately. Disinterest in upadana, in clinging, craving, not only to objects of desire, um, getting beyond grasping an aversion, getting beyond obsession and hatred uh, of objects, but getting beyond uh, grasping an aversion in one's own mind, right? So nama rupa, not just uh, going beyond or learning the right, right disinterest, wise, balanced disinterest in external objects of desire, meaning putting them in their place. Like, it's good to have yummy food. It's good to have uh, sex and sleep and bed and silk and uh, whatever. It's good to have a nice refrigerator. It's good to have a good washing machine. It's nice to have a kitchen. Um, but don't make too much of it, <laughs> is the idea. <clears throat> because it'll change and you'll change, and the pleasure or the sukkah from it anyway is anichanata. It's sukkah, it's sukkah yeah, and it's sukkah tukkah, <laughs> because it's all impermanent and insubstantial. And even the happiness that we have from it is un inconstant and unstable. You know, you get it, you feel happy. Uh, two years later, you totally forget it every day. 
and you look at it and you feel like good, you know. That's a nice refrigerator. I like my air conditioner. Or I have a good Panasonic fan. Cool, cool. Uh, but it, if, you, if we rely on uh, acquisition of outer objects as a primary means of fulfillment, like uh, shop till you drop, or I love shopping, uh, or whatever, you know, I love going to the bar and drinking, whatever, I love my sports team and I'm depressed because my TV doesn't work. It's all impermanent and it's all insubstantial. And that doesn't mean it's not sukkah, but it's sukkah dukkah. And um, wise disinterest <laughs> or wise attachment, <laughs> uh, which will change over time, is critical. And so the first two about robes shows you not only the, the mind of the early Buddhists, uh, where... In the first, they're wearing robes made from discarded or soiled cloth, not accepting or wearing ready-made robes offered by householders. Second, having and wearing only three robes and not getting additional ones, not being a <clears throat> a uh, robe freak. <clears throat> uh, you know, it's relation to clothing. And yet, when Carla asked Ra um, about her practice, to deny herself from buying robes, or not robes, <laughs> clothes. <clears throat> uh, she wasn't a monk in this lifetime. Uh, buying clothes for herself for a year, Ra seemed to basically counsel against it, saying sort of uh, doing the right thing for the wrong reasons makes more distortion, that ultimately she was in danger of exacerbating self-esteem issue, low self-esteem or distortions of self-worth, and that her denial, her desire to deny herself purchasing clothing for a year actually was liable to amp up self-esteem or low self-esteem distortions or low self-esteem. So that's um, restraint um, that is harmful. Harmful restraint. Meanwhile, <laughs> some restraint is critical. And <clears throat> so it's something to consider. And it's all very deep, and it's very, very personal, all this. And so she could tell some people, I'm going to stop buying clothes for a year. One person says, oh, that's so great, I should do that too. And another person says, oh, I think that's really not necessary, or that's really hurtful, you're going to really hurt yourself. Those are Both of those reactions are sincere <laughs> from the speaker. And both of them are not quite centered on the truth that Ra speaks, that it wouldn't be helpful because it would exacerbate low self-worth. So one person thinks, it's great, I should do it, but that's actually not, wasn't at least Carla's process that Ra um, highlighted or pointed out. So the person may think it's great, but they're just talking from themselves. They don't really understand the significance at soul level for her. Meanwhile, they think it's good. And so she could feel good that they hear that. Then there's the other person who says, oh, that's terrible, you're hurting yourself. Where that's maybe true, but actually they still don't understand why it wouldn't be helpful for her. Meanwhile, it might be helpful for them. Who knows? And so it's all very subtle. <laughs> What's good for me today 
um, may not be good for me tomorrow. What's good for him or her now may or may not be good for him or her now, and the person who observes may or may not know. And just because somebody agrees with you doesn't mean you're both not right. <laughs> you may, We may both be wrong, although we both have total agreement. We totally agree with each other, and we're both mistaken. <laughs> it happens. Or we're totally against each other, and both and, and there's important elements of truth in both of our perspectives, while we don't think so, because we just fight or think we're totally against each other. And so <laughs> truth is a very subtle matter. So anyway, these are the first two practices on robes. Then five for food. Three, four, five, six, <clears throat> seven. Uh, eating only food collected on Pintapata, which is the alms round. Not accepting food in the monastery. Or going to a layman's house. There are monks in Thailand who uh, are plump and puffy uh, because they eat yummy, yummy high-end Thai curries. <laughs> every day at rich people's houses in Bangkok. Uh, when, I, when I was the 10-day monk, we were unbelievably overfed, actually. Every meal, lunch, and breakfast and lunch was like this enormous Thai palace uh, gourmet situation. It was very crazy. Uh, alms, food eaters. Uh, okay, there's that. House to house, not omitting any house, meaning not choosing only to go to rich households uh, or those selected for some other reason. <laughs> I won't choose which houses I get alms from. One sessioner, and that's the one that every real monk is doing in Thailand, or all Theravadan monks do, eating one meal a day. Um, not eating food, refusing food offered, refusing other food offered before midday. It's also refusing food after midday. Bowl food eaters practice eating food from his bowl mixed together rather than plates and dishes. Personally, I like that one myself too. Uh, it's the one bowl wonder. <clears throat> Different than hamburger helper, but similar. It's the original hamburger helper. Seven, later food refusers. Not taking any more food after one's shown one satisfied, even though lay people wish to offer more. Give <laughs> more, more, more. Eat, 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 eat. And... Um, this is the practice of saying, stop bothering me. I ate. Leave me alone. Now let me chant. Uh, then we have the practices of where to live. And so while the five, the last five, you know, they're associated with right, right restraint, <laughs> uh, right disinterest, dispassion, detachment regarding food. And so... You know, the best of food turns to shit tomorrow when you when you go to the toilet. And I think that's a very important function. It's important teaching in third density, frankly. There are a few functions that are very bizarre. There, there are a few little logoic hints, I think, here. Number one, um, no matter how lovely the food, it comes out as shit later. And so the body makes good use of it. And then, it, and then the refuse is shitty. That's kind of nasty. And so food turns to shit. Um, after it's been well absorbed or not well absorbed but used uh, properly or well for the body for in incarnation experience there's some association between food and shit you know I don't recommend eating shit obviously and shit is pretty nasty that's why they call it shitty you know but 
<clears throat> that that the yummiest and most expensive of delicacies turns to shit tomorrow morning or whenever you uh, dump it uh, is is a teaching that that I think you know surely um, supports right dispassion <laughs> to food and right uh, detachment from uh, over obsession with food uh, issues of food in any way the other one of course is that the, the sexual genital sexual organs genitals are right near your shit you know releasing point and so the it's the root chakra has got a lot going on down there uh, you've got the sexual organ uh, for holy holy procreation H-O-L-Y a sacred procreative organ uh, with the um, perineum, which is really um, the root chakra, the, the midpoint, mid chakra, root chakra, midpoint of the root chakra. If the two feet, the the midpoint of the feet, and the perineum are all of root chakra, which I think is Ra's suggestion. You've got a tripod, triadic nature of root chakra. The midpoint or the peak apex would be perineum, which also happens to be between the sacred sexual organ and the anus which is a nasty place or at least it's you know where shit emerges which is not a lovely thing <clears throat> uh, so uh, that's strange too <laughs> that those three are put so close together again um, it, the Chinese Buddhist teaching on that is something like it's not related to that but it's not directly on it but it's uh, Dragons and snakes commingle, and so in that mythology, dragon is um, noble, virtuous, sage, or true monk versus the snake and the uh, you know selfish <laughs> service to self, negatively oriented person or monk. They commingle; they're all mixed up together down here, and that's the way it goes. And so that strange uh, uh, temp uh, spatial spatial arrangement of the spatial proximity of sacred sexual organ for procreation and perpetuation of the race and sexual pleasure and orgasm which is quite uh, quite a kundalini experience and the perineum root chakra and the anus those three together also i think um leads to some dispassion to um to uh, human life anyway uh, those uh, five about food, then followed by five related to living place, uh, not dwelling, number eight, not dwelling in a town or village, but living secluded away from distractions. And so that's the value of seclusion or solitude. And um, one, <laughs> solitude is really important. Wise, balanced solitude, right? Not too much, not too little as you feel you need it. Next, living under a tree without roof shelter. Next, refusing a roof and tree root. Uh, undertaken uh, this practice sheltered by a tent of robes. Uh, this is basically, um, this was a, you know, the, they're the guys who say, I'm going to sleep under a tree. Then they're the guys who say, I don't want to get attached to this tree. I'm not going to be attached. And that happened. Some monks were attached to this. This is my tree, not your tree. 
And so then they have the next practice, which is uh, I'm not going to stay at the same tree every night. I'll go from tree to tree or anywhere. And you'll see uh, 12 is being satisfied with any dwelling allotted a sleeping place. Sleeping, it's the original sleeping around practice, um, but it's solitary. And um, you can see how this clearly um, <laughs> leads to breaking attachment to bed and sleep. Uh, unfortunately, um, if it's not done well, I imagine ill health will come naturally uh, from that. Eleven is uh, living in or nearby charnel field, charnel ground, graveyard, cremation ground, and that's the practice that um, is most severe, I'd say. And um, that's very much associated with the observations of Vijaya Sutta where the body is seen, the, the, the living body is seen through the filter of the decomposing carpet, carcass body. That a living body <laughs> is, um, is, a, is a temporary appearance of what will later be a decomposing rotting carcass. Okay? <laughs> now, again, uh, I'm not even suggesting that meditation. Um, but there's some truth to it. And that's just something to consider. And again, this is um, bitter medicine for super attachment to greed or body lust fascination. And again, you know, sometimes um, non-restraint in some sense is the fastest way to renunciation. So... Okay, without repeating myself endlessly. Finally, the sitter's practice, living in the three postures of walking, standing, sitting, and never lying down. I tried to do that once, and um, midway I just gave up. <laughs> I said, you know, I just my, my motivation, I think my angst had gone away by that time of the night. Um, I actually had built for myself a chin rest with a keisaku stick as the support, uh, some kind of a wood block platform, like the uncarved block, um, horizontal base, uh, within which was put a keisaku stick vertical, which is the stick used in Zen, Japanese Zen temples for whacking shoulder muscles, and then a chin rest. <laughs> I actually built that for myself. I think probably some illuminist probably has it by now, or it... Uh, Took, went into the great fire uh, but I couldn't use I didn't end up using it that much because at a certain point at 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning I just said oh this doesn't matter <laughs> and I lay down went to sleep <clears throat> and so um, I tried but um, I just didn't have I don't, maybe I didn't have enough angst <laughs> to do that practice or enough discipline you can look at it either way Anyway, uh, all right, we're pulling to the end here. So, okay, so we see Vijaya Sutta and this understanding of the victory of um, what I is over uh, super attachment to physicality and body uh, worship and body attachment 
and uh, sexuality, lusts like that, and body image and body embodiment, that that this um, represents essentially uh, it's sort of an extreme. It's an it's a manifestation of a kind of extreme medicine for heavily lusting body identified body craving mind uh, yet uh, the spiritual path surely is a wise rejection of over attachment to the outer and a wise focus and prioritization of the inner which is mind spirit versus over attachment to body right body mind spirit and um, you see that in Taoism, Tao Te Ching, obviously. There are all sorts of social climbing, clinging, uh, craving is um, devalued versus the sage that um, holds to the way of um, detachment, stillness, um, non-control. Uh, this is just for consideration. And <clears throat> ultimately, again, the purpose of seeing body this way, or the purpose of renunciation, um, breaking super, recognizing, and then dissolving super attachments of any form, is to move towards contentment as is, or contentment with oneself or mind or life as is. Uh, which itself is a support for greater meditation or awakening or self-communion or development of green, blue, indigo. So anyway, I think you got a good sense of uh, where some, what Buddhist asceticism is in the Pali Canon or the Theravadan approach to Buddhist asceticism. And... Um, the spirit behind the teaching, which is very appropriate. I, I mean, for people who are serious about transformation, certainly people doing meditation regularly, deeply, um, there's much that can be gleaned, uh, little scattered diamonds, sapphires, and rubies, um, emeralds, sapphires, rubies, right? <laughs> Green, blue, and clear precious gems that can be uh, identified and gathered here and there in the essential principles that are being uh, expressed um, by the sutta and dutanga practice. So, I hope that's useful. Um, next time, we will go to the final sutta of chapter one, Muni Sutta, which is one of the oldest from the earliest strata of Sutta Nipata or of the Pali Canon. And um, I think it'll be quite interesting. So, thank you for being here. I hope it was helpful. Take good care and good night.